Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment and zero carbon goals. This week, we're talking about air quality and ventilation with Simon Jones, the founder of a new consultancy called Air Quality Matters, which offers outcome-focused ventilation strategy for business, housing, construction, all sorts. Now, Simon's a, a professional with 20 years of experience within the housing, construction and building sectors. He's Jeff's favorite ventilation expert, I think. Sorry, Jeff, or anyone else if I got that wrong. He's an associate member of both the Institute of Environmental Science and the Institute of Air Quality Management. He's acted as expert advisor to government during the pandemic. And there's more, so uh, check his website and LinkedIn. Our chat covered ventilation for the home and the workplace and for health. The broad growing demands around regulation precipitated by the the prevalence of mold and damp in the discourse and in people's homes. And curiously, the work from home time bomb around employer responsibilities as relates to an appropriately ventilated work environment. Just a quick heads up, we start off with about five minutes of chit chat about technology in that, which I only kept in because it's instructive in terms of UX design. People will give you anything that you want if you make it easy enough for them to do so. But importantly, Jeff used it as a segue into the actual ventilation conversation. So if you can't be bothered listening to us witter on, just skip forward five minutes and you get straight into Jeff's idea about an AI-driven... In fact, I'll just let you skip forward. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy it. Oh, absolute last thing. It's just me and Jeff this week. Alex could make it. I mean, obviously, Simon as well. All right. I'll definitely let you listen to it now. Simon, you're there, are you? He's looking very still. I can't oh, even see. There we go. Yeah, definite movement. Oh, yeah. Hey, there Simon. Just getting, uh, yeah, just getting live. I haven't switched Zoom on for a while, so I have to rejig all the microphones and stuff. Oh, I see. Right. What, what is the teams you're using or what? Um, actually, no, increasingly now, uh, Google. It was funny when I started with Ambisense, so they were using a lot of Google and I absolutely hated it. And then slowly just started getting one over because particularly like, if you use Google calendars and things like that, it just it's a really easy tool. They own, because they own everything, it, yeah, it makes it seamless, you know. Yeah, and everything's online and there's a lot of decent AI now. And yeah. And just seamless transition between stuff. That's what I think these organizations realize that if you can make stuff seamlessly integrated it doesn't really matter what the marketing does people just end up using it people just looking for an easy life they kill you with convenience that's how they get you yeah absolutely murder you with convenience just make it so unbelievably easy and of course everything's single sign-on with google as well which you immediately can sign up to stuff with it it's all part of the infrastructure it's brilliant where does the EU sit with this, though? Because the EU doesn't it tends to quite rightly be very sketchy about you know uh, having these enormous you know monopolies or uh, across different parts of the internet, for instance. How do you kind of try and stop this kind of uh, convenience uh, without people hating you? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I honestly think ninety nine point nine percent of people don't give a monkey's. Yeah. They're looking for, they've got a supercomputer in their pocket and they've got a supercomputer on, on their desk. It just needs to integrate with you as easily as possible. No one cares until they're informed of the consequences of their actions. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they do care and it becomes 
uh, a reputationable reputational uh, risk to the organization like uh google glass for instance as soon as everyone realized they were being recorded all the time they gave up they really gave up and they made the glass holes pariahs in their communities and absolutely killed what google thought was going to be the next big thing it's just so hard to conceive of how much information they're collecting about you and how they can all put that together you know it's obscured by the term metadata that's not real yeah. information it's the most real information just yeah, think of metastatic is probably the better you know it's ubiquitous, uh, but what um but what these organizations are not afraid to do is make mistakes like they really just keep pushing keep pushing keep pushing and they, they'll make blunders and they'll reverse and change direction yeah. and launch again with something else and they just it's never ending progress with these guys it's 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 unrelenting like google yes. glass google glass was a big thing but they've been that and moved on and they're having a go again shortly you know like it just maybe they, they just think oh we're too early you know like time wasn't right and they'll come back at it in five years time and well they just they just don't care there's so much money and it's so unrelenting they've yeah. all got they all this fail quickly methodology you know to push it out there if it doesn't work learn how to bin it quickly and move on well the move yeah. fast and break things philosophy is a way of keeping ahead of regulation it's not about actually it's making just what the world needs right now, isn't it? Move, move fast and break things. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's exactly it. And where you're talking about like the reinvention of glass, uh, Facebook, the company, uh, they came up with their own new iteration of Google Glass a couple of years ago and launched that in collaboration with Ray-Bans. And I mean, as you can tell by its current ubiquity, it was a roaring success. The only one that is a success in that space. Uh, has been the Snapchat glasses, which have a very limited functionality of just integrating with like a couple of Snapchat functions. But because they've got a hardcore of users, uh, they realized where the opportunity was. And it's it's just not a mass market invention. You uh, saying that about the um, get keeping ahead of the regulations, it was uh, reminds me of that the social dilemma, you know, where they were saying effectively what where these organizations are, they're working with prehistoric brains with medieval law with and geriatric representatives yeah and uh advanced computers and ai like so you don't stand a chance it's just an unfair fight you you cannot keep up with that um yeah. it's relenting and the you know the ai stuff at the moment they've broken through all of the was it five laws of ai just blown through them i have a i have a solution now just to bring this back on point in terms of um of why we're speaking to you, Simon, if any of our tech overlords are listening, you can forget about your Google Glass. What you need now, and Simon is the man to helmet, is Google Nose. It's a fake digital nose. <laughs> <laughs> Detecting all the nefarious particulates. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can call it snout if you prefer. <laughs> uh, let the marketing people decide. They're both goals and uh, suggestions. Yeah, yeah there's, there's some interesting tech around um, odors. And um, particularly around, you know, the governance of things like uh, refuse dumps and things like that. There's a lot of tech goes into picking up odors from those kind of spaces. And I don't know much about it, to be honest. I'm assuming it's similar technology to kind of TVOC technology that's just capturing certain pollutants and understanding, you know, it's just, you know, a zoned in calibrated device to certain 
yeah. that they know give off an odor. Um, well, I'm not talking about no odor so much. As, um, as sorry for cutting you off. Um, I'm not. Um, it's you know I'm talking about about the the, the yeah the, the the substances or the the particulates of the VOCs that that your feeble nose cannot pick up. Hence the need for the digital nose. Unless of course you've got long you know you got uh, you lost your sense of smell because of COVID or whatever you know. Well, that, well, ironically, that's what a lot of our standards are based on is likelihood of discomfort, which a majority of it is odors. So most of the ashray stuff, most of the stuff from North America that determined our half an air change an hour or five air changes an hour, whatever the standards are for various different buildings. Mm. It was all based off of sticking a hundred people in a room and getting them to sniff something and based on discomfort would determine what that regulation was. So again, it's remarkably accurate. You know, when they've gone back and looked at it from a more of a threshold perspective, they find that Time and time again, it's pretty spot on. I mean, there are things you can't pick up, obviously, um, mm. but generally speaking, for general air quality, it's even today, it's a pretty good, solid approach to understanding air change rates and and, and air quality in general in in spaces, which I, which is amazing, really. Yet maybe not that surprising. You know, we're quite good at human beings of understanding risk when we walk into something from another environment, mm. uh, the, the risk is when it builds up around you slowly, that kind of boiling frog scenario, that's where we we, we don't, we get less good at it. I suppose the point is that even if your, whatever you, your monitoring abilities are, don't catch a particular, and particular, particularly harmful pollutant, if you just put a proper ventilation strategy in place, it's going to shift nearly anything, really. Is that fair to say? Yeah, to to a point, it depends what you're replacing it with. You know, clearly you can have a good ventilation strategy in the wrong. Well, it's not a good ventilation strategy in that circumstance. But you can have good air change rate in the wrong circumstance and make the situation worse potentially. Mm -hmm. So it really depends. We we get very good at seeing our environment through the lens of our environment, and I'm often reminded speaking to international colleagues that it can be dramatically different depending on where in the globe you are how you view air quality and ventilation strategies and approaches to things quite dramatically so actually you have a very specific view of thermal comfort and air tightness and how you mechanically ventilate spaces it can be wildly different to say if you live in california where you've got very different pollutants and environmental conditions and you know, regulations are fundamentally different in those spaces because the environments are fundamentally different. Look, wildfires, I mean, you know, the stuff of New York uh, recently, you know, I suppose you're talking, I remember reading a, there's a, a systematic review paper a couple of years ago on, on ventilation, the ventilation and health relationship um, uh, in buildings. And um, uh, there was one, one or two of the studies that this review referenced showed cases where an increased ventilation rate in cases where they were not filtering the supplier i should say was clearly causing a decline in indoor air quality because if you're bringing in if you're replacing uh less polluted indoor air with more polluted outdoor air logically you know that's not a good thing to do i i I think there's a bit there's a bit of work to be done in understanding what we consider air quality good air quality and it really it really depends on perspective and what what you're trying to manage there's some really interesting work being done by ben jones in nottingham 
university and um max sherman over in the states and a few others looking mm. at the harm effects of certain pollutants and they're completely shifting the perspective actually on what sets of pollutants we look at and there may only be five tops uh air pollutants that actually have a real impact a harm impact on things like dalis you know the the uh, disability adjusted life years metric so actually looking at the impact on human beings there may only be five pollutants of interest um that are an order of magnitude more harmful than everything else by 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 hundreds or thousands of times so almost irrelevant that so as you know like with things like vocs there are dozens of vocs that are potentially harmful Mm. but actually the harm they cause if you're looking at a population level and to have an impact at a population level right yeah. may only be that in fact ashray may only be considering three of these pollutants uh to look at as as, as if you if you just concentrated on three you'd deal yeah. with 95 percent of the harsh this is uh, based on empirical evidence so they're uh, you know based on actually monitoring uh you know actual mortality and morbidity rates or 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 something along those lines is that yeah it's not an unusual approach right um we yeah. did it years ago with things like smoking pack years was a, a really good example of looking at um Dali's where you know when you went into your doctors he'd ask how many do you smoke a day and you you'd say oh i smoke 20 a day doctor and and if you smoke 20 a day for a year you'd be marked down as having a pack year Mm. And based on how many pack years of smoking you had, they could. Is that like a pack of fags? Yeah, pack of fags, a pack <laughs> year. So, uh, it, literally, a pack year, God. 20 cigarettes a day for a year. If you smoke 40 a day, it seems unconscionable anybody smoking 40 a day, but everybody smoked loads of cigarettes a day back in the day. So yeah. if you smoke 40 a day for a year, you'd have two pack years. And based on how many pack years you have behind you, they could draw a straight line between that and the cost to the health service through right. COPD, smoking, cancer, and all of that. And the the doctor would ask because they would have that then by jurisdiction, so they would know based on how many pack years were in a certain location, they could understand what the cost, the health implications were to that area, um, and direct resources. Unbelievable piece of public health work. Um, but it's principally Dali's and, and what the, the Max Sherman and a few others were looking at this years ago mm. starts to string out n- not necessarily straight lines between air quality and health outcomes, but but more broadly Dali's. So you could put a money, a, a number, a money number figure against it, because once you can start attributing cost to something, you can start directing resources more effectively. Mm. So that mm. work was started, I think, by Max Sherman. It was anyway. And then Ben and a few others took it up through one of the annexes of the AIVC, and they looked at both. Um, they looked at several he- uh, health outcome measures and combined them, and have come up with a, effectively a Dali impact for all of the different pollutants. So you can have, for example, the most prevalent VOC in the built environment is ethanol. Um, by an order of magnitude more than most other VOCs, but it has a limited health impact. 
Whereas something like formaldehyde has a very specific health out outcome, but is less prevalent. So if you just looked at the amount of the pollutants in the space, mm. it, you, you may be targeting the wrong thing. And so effectively what they've done by taking this approach is said, what's the harm caused by these specific pollutants based on how yeah. much of them and how much health impact they have? Uh, and it's the usual suspects. There'd be no surprise, but it's particulate matter. It's formaldehydes. It's ozone. It's um, uh, uh, nitrogen dioxide. It's so there's traffic pollution stuff in there. There's mm. the built environment stuff like formaldehyde, um, and then there's particulate matter. The interesting mm. thing about particulate matter is that it's a little bit like a proxy itself because it's it's not the necessarily the particulates themselves that are the risk it's what they're made of mm. so particulates as you know about can be both solid and liquid in form uh you take a nebulizer that's a particulate a 2.5 microgram particulate but that does you good so it's not necessarily all particulates are bad it's what they're made of often is the problem so if the particulates are outside in nature, they're often traffic pollution-based particulates mm. or wildfire smoke, for example, can have all sorts of nasties in it. Uh, but if they're indoor particulates, the, the, the main culprit is things like cooking, for example. So actually, one of the biggest – and the reason cooking's bad is because you're covering these particulates in all sorts of things like vegetable oils and – things like the fat oils and things like that, which are not good for you. Uh, so actually one of the, the biggest health impacts we can have from a particulate basis from the built environment is making sure everybody's got a cooker hood that goes directly to outside and is used. That, well, this, this... that potentially has a bigger health impact than almost every other pollutant combined. Uh, this brings me back to when you mentioned Max and Ben, Max Herman and Ben Jones, I immediately thought back to an article that we published in the magazine on indoor air quality and cooking a while ago. And that was my first proper experience with, of, of the pair of them, really. Uh, I'd, I'd met Max at, a, at an AIBC, AI that's the Air Infiltration and Ventilation Center, by the way, which is a, it's a part of the International Energy Agency, as I understand it. Um, and Simon has uh, some fancy down role there, um, uh, one of the hats that he wears. Um, that article was a real eye-opener for me. Max, I have to say, uh, is a rare thing uh, among kind of scientists. Uh, he's a really good communicator. Um, and um, so I, I found him very useful when it came to the article. But Ben, when you're talking about particulates, um, uh, isn't he known by some of the other uh, indoor air quality scientists as Mr. Mr. Burnt Toast? <laughs> because he's got this obsession over over the health impacts of burnt toast, you know, being mocked by other scientists playfully and, and affectionately, I'm sure, for a very real and uh, kind of omnipresent uh, health risk, you know? Yeah, well, it's it's often the case in um, in air science, for, for want of a better word, that you're trying to find uh, practical ways of producing the pollutants of interest in the environments that you're creating. And mm. and with the kitchen one, you, it, it, it's, it doesn't seem very scientific, but they'll burn toast or they'll fry bacon you'll see in the, the scientific literature very price precisely describing how they fry bacon so that so it's repeatable. 
as as much as it can be to produce you know ultra fine particles made of oil you know fat, frying fats um or burning toast and creating you know black smoke from burnt toast which i'm presuming is full of carbon or something you know so right. like it's written it's it happens all over the place with air quality they can't you, you see like these 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 lab experiments when they start to do the real experiments trying to replicate that environment um because it's a known you know it's a, it's it's the same type of pollutant that you, you you're trying to measure but how you do it seems quite funny sometimes you know yeah well you're describing like almost an esoteric approach to air quality you know it's like rarefied abstracted considerations how is this affecting the work that you do this sort of research because who's going to stop burning toast and frying bacon and like with regard to uh defining these these five primary elements or the the five most impactful elements that affect people's health when it comes to air quality like how is that affecting the sort of work that you do it might actually be worth simon like we'll have given some sort of explanation of who you are albeit a brief one in the intro but tell us a bit about what you do yeah so um as you know i've I've just launched this consultancy air quality matters where i i've basically found myself in this unique space over the last decade or so i often say in between academia and regulations and industry uh, and i've always been very outcome focused I've always, my goal has always been to try and drive a, a better outcome in this space um and I think you hit the nail on the head, Dan, where you, where you say that the, the challenge is, is this air quality and ventilation is quite nuanced. There's a lot of social science in there. There's a lot of atmospheric chemistry. There's a lot of regulations and law. It's a really complex and rich space, um, but that doesn't help a lot of people. <laughs> you know, people are housing professionals and people that are trying to manage workplaces and people who are trying to get better outcomes with, I don't know, condensation, damp and mould. Um, a lot of that stuff just frankly isn't helpful. And, and what they often need is a steer, someone to kind of be the glue in the middle to pull this stuff together in a in a concise way and explain stuff in plain English that enables them to get a better outcome. And Often air quality and ventilation sits in this risk space where you can't eliminate risk, right? You can't, you're not going to stop cooking, for example. You're not going to stop going into work. You can't help uh, resuspend particles when you come home and sit down on the sofa and everything, there's plumes of particles that hit the atmosphere. What are you going to do? Not sit on your sofa. Um, like, so... so it's not a it's not a game of elimination of risk often it's a game of communicating things in the right way developing strategies trying to work with organizations to to understand what good looks like and start to build models and strategies to work towards it um which is very similar to a lot of other risk industries really when you think about it and the conversation damp and mold story that's so prevalent at the moment is a really good example of that um conversation damp and mold isn't solvable with a silver bullet here it's not something we're going to fix 
this summer and it suddenly goes just because we've noticed it's a problem this winter doesn't mm -hmm. mean it's fixed by next winter it's complex and nuanced and multiple stakeholder orientated and a, a result of years of obfuscation and and disinvestment into the, the built environment and you name it this goes on and on and mm. on um so it's not about fixing the problem it's about it's about diagnosing the the scale of the challenge properly understanding why elements of it don't work and mm -hmm. starting to try and build building blocks with organizations that start picking away at that and importantly communicating in in a way that doesn't set the expectation that this is fixable in a in a year or two um that doesn't erode trust over time it's very similar to the complexities and journeys we're undergoing with sustainability with retrofit these are all big complex problems that require very nuanced and effective communication strategies and approaches that understand the richness and complexities of the problem um, and that's really what i positioned this consultancy to do in this very narrow uh, channel of ventilation and air quality because it's what is one of the pillars of sustainability or retrofit or the built environment that's so important right now uh, and in of itself there's a lot of complexity and richness and depth to it and, and that's what really i'm aim, aiming to help people with well this is something that we keep coming up against i'm thinking back to uh Oh, who was it, Jeff? Uh, Barry Barry McCarran, his research on is it Barry McCarran? Yeah, yeah, his yeah. yeah, his research on radon, where we were talking about. I mean, he was talking looking at uh, researching air quality with specific reference to radon within passive houses, because I mean, we don't need to get stuck into passive house here. It's just the 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 outcome of that conversation was that. Oh man, you've really got to think about systems design when you're thinking about a house because it the house doesn't exist on its own. It exists in, in an environment. And so even if you've got a passive house sitting in the country, as he was describing, the amount of filth that you get on the filters coming in from the clean country air, like never mind the appalling manure smells that waft over the fields, Jeff. The actual and the the filth particulates the manure particulates and anything else that's going on that's presumed fuel as well in ireland because your people are going to be burning oil to fuel their homes never mind the stoves dan i mean you know every at the end of every winter i've got white wooden windows in my house and at the end of every winter you can wipe the soot off oh. the windows from yeah. the from the peat and and wood and whatever people are burning around the place you know it's 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 without question a problem but then on the other hand you've got uh what lloyd alter i've just seen the pdf open of uh one of lloyd alter's blogs which i reference quite frequently hence it being open it's his uh substack about the deluded world of window replacement where he was chastening brits for always focusing on replacing windows first when it comes to retrofit rather than addressing air tightness as an air air as a energy efficiency measure when part of the reason for that is we can't go for air tightness because the ventilation in our buildings is so poor the the poxy air tightness is the ventilation in many of our buildings so what, when what you're talking about dan is context and yeah. uh, 
particularly in the world of air quality, um, context is central to a lot of the, the founding decisions that you make when it comes to managing ventilation and, and air quality. You, you cannot, I mean, I, I'll be doing a, a few risk assessments recently under the this new code of practice for indoor air quality in the workplace. And one of the first, first things you have to do when you're starting to look at a building is figure out where it is, how old it is, how mm. it's used, how that's likely to change over time, how it got to where it was today. All of these things have a massive bearing on things like whether it's likely to be exposed to traffic pollution, radon, asbestos. All of these things are context-based, uh, and it's the same for any any building um, anywhere, is where it sits and, and how it's used and its journey is enormously important. And that so rarely is looked at uh, when we look at things like retrofit, and, and we're always looking to systemize stuff and make stuff as homogenous as possible. Uh, and but it was Neil May and Chris Sanders really developed those four C's principles around managing moisture in buildings, which was context, cohesion, uh, capacity, and um, coherence. So it was, yeah, I think that's it anyway. But the, the 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 first one was context, really understanding why the building is what it is where it sits how it's used and you know that's enormously important but retrofit as well obviously and i think so, um sorry go ahead jeff no i was just going to say um you mentioned the code of practice um uh, this is the, the, the this is the health and safety authorities uh in, in ireland you're talking about it specifically their, their new uh uh rules or requirements for for employers on uh, on indoor air quality is that right and that this is just specific to ireland although i'm presuming there's something similar in the uk kind of yeah there's actually an old code of practice uh in the uk i, I think it's 20 early 2000s maybe 2007 or something like that they they had a version of it but this is quite um it's an interesting one this one the uh, this was a political thing driven during the pandemic there was this uh, particularly during the issues around schools and teachers and, and understanding risk in the workplace with COVID, it was recognised that there wasn't really adequate guidance for indoor air quality in the workplace. So there was a, a bit of opposition work around trying to develop that and it landed on the HSA's table and they came out with, it was launched a couple of months, uh, a month ago or so, uh, the Code of Practice for Indoor Air Quality in the Workplace. It's an innocuous enough looking document in the sense that there's nothing in there that's a surprise. So, um, you again, you have to understand the risk of the building. Is it likely to be exposed to outdoor pollutants? Is, is there is it in radon area? Is it pre-2000? There might be asbest, asbestos considerations, stuff like that. Nothing a surprise. Um, you have to determine the type of ventilation that's in the building. Is it mechanical or naturally ventilated? And if it's mechanical, is it performing the way that you'd expect? And if it's naturally ventilated or a mixture, how do you know that the air quality is adequate in those spaces? And you have to risk assess it the way you would do most workplace risk assessments. Uh, uh, so I've been doing that with a few organisations. And, and what's very clear and no surprise to any of us in the industry is that this actually has some fairly major repercussions down the road because it's now a 
a mechanism like most code of practice, a, a guidance as to what to expect. You know, it's a bit like technical guidance documents in the, the building regulations. And the, the big things in this are that if you have a mechanically ventilated building, you should have a performance review of the ventilation uh, into each of the ventilation zones, effectively. So each of the spaces and their types of use. So you break it up into open plan areas, meeting rooms, breakout areas, canteens, whatever your office place is constituented of. And you would you need to show that the ventilation is meeting, for example, SIPSI guidance for flow rates into each of those spaces. So 10 litres a second per person or four or five air changes per hour into each of the spaces or whatever the, the, the standards are for that particular type of space. Simple enough, right? But the challenge is, is that almost no buildings that have been have got mechanical ventilation in have ever done this, ever. Like <laughs> sometimes at commissioning, when the building was handed over, you might be able to find a document somewhere where somebody went round and measured some flow rates but I can almost guarantee that, and I've never seen a building that within the last 24 months, which is what the code of practice is looking for, has done a performance review of the ventilation, right? That means somebody getting up and down a ladder in every single room of that building and actually checking that the flow rates are doing what they should do in each of those spaces. If those spaces are even, even reflect the original state of the building when it was commissioned, as you know, under refurbishments, you get partitions and new meeting rooms pop up and stuff like that. Very rarely is stuff rejigged. So what almost every building is looking down the barrel of now over the next few years is undertaking this risk review recognizing they've got no idea how the ventilation actually performs they'll have air conditioning servicing reports coming out of their ear but nobody's ever measured flow rates that will be quite expensive to do and when they do it they're probably not going to like the results mm. and they're going to have to fix that that's now a clear risk that's been identified a gap in performance that will need to be met um and that's quite a big ramifications for buildings that are being run to failure or have been ignored or they, they basically it's a policy of, well, when it breaks, we'll fix it, um, which is like literally most of the built environment out there. Um, and then the naturally ventilated spaces or the hybrids of mechanically or naturally ventilated where you can't determine whether you're meeting the risk or not, you'll have to monitor with air quality monitors. And the same thing will happen there is that you'll start to monitor those spaces, realize they're massively underperforming and will then realize that you've now got a risk, a defined risk to deal with. And of the, the other implication of this code of practice is the fact that it's now a mechanism for employees to complain over. So once unions start to pick up on this, and a good example of that is over in the UK, all of the teaching unions got together and have produced a document for teachers on how to complain about air quality in your school and to get something done about it. That kind of thing is going to start to pop up here. And it's very possible that that, that employers will come under pressure to start fixing things. And the reality is if you've got 300 employees, there's a good chance 
somebody's already sensitive to the building, probably complained about sick building syndrome, and probably has an air quality monitor sat on their desk already. Yeah, if you've got if you've got vulnerable people, uh, anybody with any kind of respiratory kind of uh, issues, and I know, I mean, I get press releases from the health and safety authority occasionally uh, about a fine or uh, prison sentence or whatever, mostly mostly kind of large fines. Um, facing companies for being in breach of some act some aspect of of you know uh workplace rules and regulations and codes of practices um i don't know what the teeth are in this particular case uh, is it the same uh, and, and i don't know how you know in other words i'm thinking about uh this what are the drivers from from uh from the most kind of ignorant employers perspective uh, are they going to be in a situation where um they could potentially be facing large fines um, or or criminal proceedings or i i'm i'm not experienced enough to say what the the mechanisms for health and safety risk are in the workplace um for things like this it, it, it's it's analogous it's another podcast it's, it's, on right actually you know yeah it's it's analogous to other potential chronic injury to workplace it's not like a it's not like a fire risk or a, 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 a falling object risk in the warehouse where there's potential immediate injury and, and death. Um, mm. th- th- this this probably sits within the kind of the, do you have the right seating and uh, desks provisions in the workplace to limit occupational um, risk, that kind of thing. Um, so I imagine it's a softer approach where you, I imagine the scenario is going to be, if, if it's not employee-driven, is that at some point you'll have a health and safety risk assessment. A, the, the health and safety officer will go, yeah, can I see your, your smoke alarm, last report, great, thanks. Have you got your forklift servicing? Uh, fantastic, yeah. Um, can I see your ventilation risk assessment, please? And you'll go, yeah, what now? And you go, the ventilation risk assessment, under the code of practice, you know, provision of good air quality, you're supposed to have done a, a risk assessment. They go, Okay, no, haven't done that. We say, okay, well, you need to do that. I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll come back in a few weeks' time. And lo- like I, I've had that in the workplace where they say, look, we'll come back and we'll help you and help you get there. Here's your resources for you to go away and look at to get that done, you know. And so you'll be nudged in the right direction. Um, so I, I think it'll be a softly, softly approach. I don't think it's resourced yet in the HSA. They haven't even released a press statement about this yet. So I don't think they're in a particular hurry to stamp on this um what would be interesting is the unionized organizations that see this as a a responsibility for their representatives to deal with um and provide it you know for example teaching unions you know may well make a decision that you know this is a, a risk that teachers are being put under working five days a week in an environment that's not being managed properly and they'll put political pressure onto the organizations to deal with it i'd say that's where you'll get the most um action or it's a branding issue you know organizations won't want to be seen as the brand that's got poor air quality in the workplace there's a lot of effort going into attracting people back to the workplace at the moment and the last thing you need is a black mark against you from an air quality perspective if you're yeah. trying to encourage workers back to the workplace. I, I think schools are a really interesting case in point because um, we know in Ireland in the past, and I'm sure it's been the, the, the case to a similar extent in the UK, but there's been a very laissez-faire attitude to, to ventilation, you know, very much a kind of a, a reliance on um, 
manual op- operation of window opening for ventilation in classrooms and stuff. And um, maybe, maybe the, the, the maybe that's that's kind of coming home to roost now. The consequences of 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 that decision, you know. Well, I maybe. think if if it's a big problem, like as Simon describes, like it's it need it it's shaping up to be a massive and expensive issue to deal with. And when you get massive, expensive, complicated issues to deal with, what regulators tend to do is diffuse responsibility and ignore them because no one wants to have to spend the money on it. If if the regulators can't give Kingspan a kick in over Grenfell, like what are they going to do about the the poor quality systems design, which you just described, Jeff, like people managing ventilation through opening windows, which where a ventilation system has been designed for a school, for instance, the opening of the window breaks the system. And and no one cares or thinks about that. Like none of it, like this is. You should always, in fairness, you should always design a system that's capable of handling window opening as, uh, you know, people should always have the option of uh, yeah. as, uh, as much control as possible over their space, you know? Yeah. But as we've learned plenty, like people are never taught how to use a space they work in. That's yeah. the the other issue. Like there's, I mean, that's not even a soft landing. That's like a basic operator's manual issue. So it sort of feels like, in fact, it's almost certainly going to be something that has to be driven by other issues it should be driven top down and so like the the idea that unions are going to drive changes to the workplace are interesting is interesting but there's also uh like there are folk like asset managers or people wanting to uh live in healthy households (laughs) like where do they start with issues like this like because not everyone can call in a simon well, you, you touched on a really interesting point there, Dan, and that is that and the Health and Safety Authority have been on record on this, and they're absolutely clear. An employer has the responsibility for adequate ventilation for their employees, no matter where their place of work is. Oh. And that includes home working. So and and the 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 chair or the vice chair of the health and safety, I was in a, a conference there last year. She said, be under no illusion. It doesn't matter whether your employee is working two weeks in offices in Spain or is working three days a week from home. You have an obligation for the health and safety at work of your employees, no matter where that place of work is. And now we're treading into really interesting ground about mm. an employer's responsibility for the home working environment um it's a similar conversation around esg and like are you respond how how much of my home are you responsible for heating your carbon emissions and reporting uh it, when when it comes to the home working environment so there's um it's a it's a really it's a really interesting area this health and safety risk perspective thing but like like a lot of good outcomes in complicated environments it's it's not just one thing that there's there are a dozen things happening at the same time at the moment similarly in retrofit where you have tightening of regulations redefining and and focusing in on standards and thresholds and metrics you have skills gaps being closed you have awareness programs being built all of these things 
well, policing being resourced properly. Um, all of these things together have have to come together to get a good outcome. Ultimately, they don't drive it in of themselves. Um, so you have to play all of these cards. That that's the reality. So yes. There's a lot of employees that won't know about this, won't be aware of it, won't care necessarily. Um, wait for somebody to give them a nudge because you know they've got a, a workplace risk assessment sat on the desk there. Nobody's looked at it in ten years. You know the usual. Um, so there's awareness work to be done as well. But the regulations are tightening. There's codes of practice and better guidance. You may have a squeeze from employees coming in at some point. All of these things are. A, a, a tightening the noose on air quality and ventilation in the workplace for sure um and increasingly we're seeing standards popping up so best practice so it, it's what one of the biggest drivers is being able to look next door and seeing somebody doing it right next door you I know mean, if you want to retain employees um increasingly they're taking into account a lot of the the s in esg when they're looking at where to go and work next you know and part of that is health and well-being um, so if you're decided you want to retain skills and retain talent, it's the onus is on you to create environments that people want to come in and work in. They see a building next door that's well certified or reset certified or is, is a lead standard project and is got workplace incentives and good hybrid models and is a good place to come in. And you've got your dreary grey building that nobody's really looked at for 15 years and somebody comes in and interviews in both buildings i know where i'm gonna go and work you know that that's changing and equally those types of buildings are being divested out of by the people that own them and manage them because they recognize particularly under esg frameworks and eu taxonomies and stuff that how those buildings are being valued is being fundamentally rejigged at the moment and part of that is the health and well-being outcomes of those buildings if they know they're going to have to invest a ton load of money upgrading ventilation systems and filtration and trying to get that building to where it needs to be they may well just look to run that to failure and divest out of it in the next five years before it's due for release um that, a lot of that is happening at the moment um wow so it's it's, it's coming like it, it's a it's an interesting environment at the minute the workplace health and well-being environment I, well, i'm I just fascinated by what you're saying in the context of uh, of home working because um thinking it through if, if if home working is here to stay what you're really telling me is that if i want to land a plum job um where i may be home working i need to retrofit my house first <laughs> because they may they may take account of my working my, my home conditions before before they give me the job in the first place well, every employer has effectively been able. There's a there's a saying in workplace at the moment: half the space, twice the experience. It's a bit, it's a bit comical, but really, what it reflects is the fact that a lot of workplaces are significantly shrinking their footprint of their built environment because of the nature of work now. Um, and what they've effectively done is just offset scope one and two emissions of their own buildings and shoved it into scope three of the home working environment so there's a big body of work to be done by workplaces figuring out how to take account of scope three emissions for example from the home working environment and the the best plain english description of that is at the moment i'm talking to you with my door closed is it your responsibility as an employer to keep 11 square meters 
around me as a, a space, which is what I've attributed for you at work. What happens if I open the door? Is it your responsibility to keep this thermally comfortable now for my entire three and a half thousand square foot house? Not three and a half thousand square foot house, I have to say. But is it what? Where does that line stop? If you're going to have to start taking account of the heating and, and carbon emissions of this property, because that's now part of your built environment, where do you draw the line? And similarly with air quality, um, is it your responsibility to have an air cleaner in every single home office environment to guarantee the quality of air? Because you're guaranteeing the quality of air in your workplace. You, you, you're proud of it. You've got a well-building standard. You're trying to attract people in there. And, and you've got a proportion of your workforce working in the same room that they were asleep in last night. Uh, on a busy high street, dealing with pollution, perhaps uh, at what percentage of the rented population are living in condensation, damp and mould environments at the moment? What responsibility do you have as an employer to deal with the air quality of, of that? Um, it's a mess and it's, it's a, a hot mess when it comes to risk for an employer. Um, it's it, it's really crossing boundaries of of people's property as well, which is sacrosanct. It's right? really interesting the way you framed it, though. Like, uh, uh, it's being an attractor for employees because I was listening to the one of the Michael Hobbs podcasts at the weekend. If books could kill, like they tend to. In fact, don't need to go into that. One of the things they were discussing was how changes about diversity and inclusion within corporations. The the influence in adopting a progressive policy tends to come from employee acquisition and retention rather than any sort of commercial pressure. So Nike in the 80s and 90s, they addressed their sweatshop issues because the best candidates for jobs didn't want to work for the sweatshop shoe company. It wasn't because of any public pressure. Nike really didn't give a monkeys because it didn't really affect sales because the people who bought those shoes wanted those shoes and uh, workers be damned. But finding the right people, and that you, seems to be, a, that's a likely catalyst for this sort of thing. Well, as an organisation, you're as good as the employees that you employ. Uh, and if you want the best talent, you need to be cognizant of that. I, I, and like all of these things, it, it's a double-edged sword. You you may want people to to work from home. Um, it's part of the offering, but are you taking account of if people are in unoptimized environments in the home office, their performance could drop by 10, 20%. Um, and and that has a straight line impact to the bottom line of the business. If if your executive suite of your business are all working from home and half of them are working in environments that is affecting their decision-making and their long-term health and well-being and their absence profiles, then you've got a big problem as a business. If you're not thinking like that, you're not thinking in the same way that you think about the workplace. You know, m most, most forward-thinking employers are really thinking about the workplace now, about how to optimize performance out of their employees. It's that it, you have people for a a defined period of time you want the most out of them when they're there um and that's the 
that the environment, the space, the conditions, the, the the culture, all of these things contribute to retaining talent and getting the most out of talent when you've got them. Um, but now we've got third of the workforce in uncontrolled environments um, and in environments that any time we look at this, we know underperform in dramatic ways. You know, the, the UK study, 90% of new builds not even meeting minimum standards for regulations. We look at condensation, damp and mold, mold profiles in the private rented sector, which is where a lot of employees would be, um, is woeful. You know, 20, 30, up as high as 40%. Like I've seen figures anywhere from 20 to 60% of private rented properties with some condensation and mold in them. Um, these things matter. Um and they're very difficult to address. And again, it's not you can't you can't mandate a, a, a fix for this. This is a communications thing. This is a, a, a strategy thing. This is a this is technical solutions. All sorts of things have to come into play to get good outcomes here. It feels like an area where regulation is needed, actually, though, because I'm just thinking about it from the kind of dystopian Black Mirror style kind of perspective. And um one of the things we saw during COVID, for instance, uh, was the people who had who had uh, who were lower up on the ladder in terms of the socioeconomic kind of scale um, did worse. People in more cramped living conditions, for instance. Um, by the same token, um, if people are working from home, for instance, people who have worse living conditions are going to have worse working conditions, and therefore going to be potentially less attractive as employees. So you kind of need to have uh, regulation to stop companies from being able to uh, put in place conditions which will, which will naturally make better off people with, with better quality housing. More Where will uh, Amazon source its warehouse workers? We're getting into like the interwar period where the, Brit- the, the British state realised, oh, Oh, then Amazon workers, factory workers, mill workers, they're so much more unhealthy than their European counterparts. They're incapable of working. (laughs) And I I think we would be naive to think that this is something that just affects lower socioeconomic classes because there's a whole section of the working class, particularly in tertiary industries, that are struggling for rent, struggling for space, working in conditions at home. You know, they're working for the call center company, the the energy company, the, you know, I'm not going to name specifics, but you know the kind of employee that that has moved to a hybrid model that are literally sitting at the end of the bed that they went to bed in last night for their working day. That's what it is. Because these these don't these apartments and houses that people are renting in that section don't have offices and spare rooms. You know, they're struggling for space as it is. So they are working in suboptimal conditions in environments that we know that any time this is looked at by any third party shows significant problems with meeting even minimum standards for ventilation. And bearing in mind that ventilation rates in the residential settings are typically, even if you're optimised, are at half an air change an hour. But you know, passive houses at 0.3 air changes an hour typically. Working environments are four, five air changes an hour, seven air changes an hour. You know that it's, it's a different environment. 
different regulations and different controls. But that's because um, you're anticipating higher uh, higher footfall rate, higher capacity within the building and stuff, right? Absolutely, absolutely. But you shut, you put yourself in a box room, and you close the door, and you don't have optimal ventilation. I tell you, your CO two levels and your air quality will deteriorate pretty rapidly, um, and you will be sitting quite often. Yeah, and it's to say, even in this room that I'm in, is what I don't know three meters by four meters by. Three meters say it's a decent size office space if i shut the window and the ventilation isn't on the co2 in here will be up at two two and a half thousand parts per million within half an hour or so i'm lucky i can open my window onto a, a garden and so, a field i'm in the country right. what if i'm on a high street or in town and my choices are pollution and noise or and cold or I shut the door and I'm sitting in. What is the impact of that rise in carbon dioxide? Because yeah. like, that's so, like, what you just said was just a bunch of numbers. Like, okay, so CO2 is a number. CO2 is a gas that we produce when we breathe. It's a really interesting marker for the effectiveness of ventilation. And it's become ubiquitous as part of the COVID pandemic because we've all started to hear this number 1000 parts per million floating around and below it below 1000 is good above 1000 is not so good it's interesting because we know what the outdoor level of co2 is because it's climbing at the moment that's greenhouse gases for you roughly 400 420 parts per million and then any co2 above that inside is generally produced by us and what's understood is if you can keep CO2 below a thousand parts per million, which is roughly 600 parts per million above outside levels, it's likely that it's indicative of reasonable ventilation. You're moving enough air for the person that's in that space for the CO2 to be being removed effectively. What's bad about having all that CO2? Just to okay. be, get to the most basic element, because like I appreciate there is a bad thing. But we talk about it being bad without ever explaining why it's bad. Yeah, well, and this is where you get this is where you get into the complexity of air quality science and health outcomes. So <laughs> CO two in of itself isn't a pollutant until you get up to levels five thousand ppm plus. It's understood that, that then there are very direct impacts. What's interesting about CO two is it keeps bad company. So where you have CO two, you're likely to have other pollutants as well. So it's a good what we call proxy for air quality. As you increase the level of CO two, you likely see increases in things like VOCs, bioeffluents, odors, other things as well. Right. So it, it has an impact because of the company that it keeps. The more CO two, the more other bad stuff there often is around. There's also some evidence that suggests it has a, a biological, physiological impact. So the, the higher CO2 goes, increases the kind of stress on the body. So you see increases in blood pressure and heart rate, and there's a physiological effect to CO2 increasing. But it's unclear, uh, and the, the, the science isn't sure, whether that has a cognitive impact, for example. But often there's a lot of confusion. You mean long-term cognitive? No, but no, also short-term. Your ability to answer tests, for example, and, and perform in that moment is affected by the air that you breathe. So there's a, there's a lot of work done by Harvard um, where they, they would suggest that there is a decline in cognitive performance as CO2 increases above 
800 parts per million. Um, I've seen I've seen some of that research. I, I thought yeah. that was more kind of accepted, you know, that, that, that once you get into a thousand plus two thousand kind of area people start to fall asleep is that not true no no it's not true you don't you you don't um you don't fall asleep because you're at two thousand parts million people in the space station are operating well above that right and performing at a very high level the confusion at the moment around co2 is exactly is it is it it that's having an impact on your cognitive performance or is it the other factors that come along with it that are causing it but but it's kind of irrelevant really that the point is is that we generally know that when you go up when you start to go above a thousand parts per million starts to have an impact for whatever reason on performance and certainly when you get up to 2000 plus almost certainly you're sitting in an environment that is very much unoptimized and it is no joke when I'm looking at data from the built environment, it's very common to see home working environments, bedrooms, meeting rooms, spaces where people congregate or work, go to two and a half thousand parts per million, three thousand parts per million, four or five thousand parts. It's horrendous. And that is very indicative of very poor ventilation in those spaces. And that will have an impact on your health. Your ability to concentrate, your, your long-term health outcomes, without question. Um, I'm just, I'm just thinking of um, whether I should be beating myself up, you know, on occasion going to like a conference where there's a packed-out crowd, and you're struggling to stay awake <laughs> after, a while, you know, in the afternoon sessions or whatever. You know, is yeah. is that is that me? Is is it the presenter being so dull? Welcome to the world of air quality. Very difficult to draw straight lines between a particular a ventilation threshold and a and a and an outcome. It, it, was it your journey? Is it the air quality at home? Is it your socioeconomic class? Is it is it the speaker? Is it the your diet? Is it you know that there's a thousand things that can affect your ability to concentrate properly at the worst time of day, typically in the afternoon, right? But certainly, if you're sitting in a overly warm muggy poorly ventilated space that's high in co2 and other pollutants it isn't helping you know it's not a lot of this stuff this is what a lot of the stuff we're doing with consultancy if you base it on better outcomes you can get stuck on the detail with a lot of this stuff sometimes and academia will argue for time and memorial about whether it's 1200 or 1250 parts per million that has an impact on x or what or y at the end of the day, we all want not to fall asleep in a conference room in the afternoon, or we want to get to the end of the day not feeling like we've been under pressure from an air quality perspective. So a lot of this stuff isn't about the, the grey middle ground. It's about the big, it's removing the big outlier problems can have a really big impact. A lot of the work is around that. Is this how you guys heckle each other at ventilation conferences, though? Ventilation conferences are notoriously the worst ventilated places. <laughs> go to although increasingly now everybody's bringing those aronet sensors around the place and sticking them on the wall you know in conferences and complaining to people that the air quality is bad that the ability for us to monitor the air that we're in is improving all the time and it seems slow when you're in the bubble but actually it's moving at quite a pace and it's getting easier and easier to see the air now and that is without question having a big impact so as imperfect as co2 is it's a it's a fabulous awareness tool and it is 
if it's used in the right way, it can have very good impacts on outcomes because people are at the least can see, well, hang on a minute, this room's in a poor state. Let's do something about it. As opposed to you sitting there and wondering if it's you. Looking at projects within the built environment on a macro level, often the question we ask is, where does someone start? If you're looking at a housing association or a new development, folks should start by speaking to a consultant like yourself. But on a more practical like grassroots level, where can people start? I'm just thinking about the the packed meeting rooms that you described that we've all been privy to. Or, I mean, you can't fix a conference, but is there anything employers or businesses or studios, like anyone, anything anyone can do for themselves immediately? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, at, a, at an individual level, there are good resources out there for information. Where you know, having knowledge, knowledge is the best tool that you can have ultimately, right? And increasingly, there's some really great resources out there for people at all sorts of levels in this environment. So, mm-hmm. yes, they can talk to people like me and, and they can run through specifics with them. But organisations like BISA in the UK have some really great plain English documents that explain air quality. If, if it's radon you're concerned about asbestos or other specific pollutants the epa both in the uk and ireland has really great resources in plain english for people to understand those risks how to how to deal with them steps to take and so on there are guides all over the place it's just it's just googling and doing a bit of research and understanding the air that you breathe The, the challenge with air quality is it's such an instinctive human endeavor to breathe that we don't consciously think about it but it's as important as the water that we drink and the food that we consume but the difference is is that we wouldn't drink a dirty glass of water or we rely on organizations to make sure that that water is up to standards and delivering where it should do the problem with air quality is it's behind the curve in that respect both in awareness and people's acceptance to breathe dirty air and in the regulations and standards to enforce it and make sure that we do uh, but things like the code of practice things like past 2035 things like building regulations they're all tightening that noose and increasingly moving towards performance based metrics and threshold metrics and things like this that are actually starting to define what good is and what bad is uh, and, and making it easier for people ultimately so it is improving it does seem slowly sometimes um but it's improving from all directions at the moment and and the results are hopefully better air quality for everybody yeah, we're all, obviously the other big driver in, in in the uk and i think to to some extent Ireland is is um is the legal risk, I suppose, in say social housing, for instance, as the consequence of this uh, this tragic death of Awak Ashab? Yeah, the two-year-old. Yeah, oh, yeah, Awak yeah. Sorry, uh, you're, I presume, seeing a significant panic uh, among social landlords to 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 kind of try and do something meaningful to to prevent them facing similar tragedies both in the uk and in ireland because a lot of the board directors that sit on approved housing bodies in ireland are from the uk so they're that you know they know very well what's coming um yeah the, the conversation damper mold things very specific uh, it was made a governance issue over the winter because of the the death of the two-year-old boy Awa Bishak. so all of a sudden 
boards of housing associations jobs were on the line and this was a this is a governance risk became political it's moved down a layer now into the operational elements of the business as they try and understand the scale of the risk so when you look across at the uk you're seeing massive investment now into things like surveying of of stock as they try to get a, a grip on exactly what the size and 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 types of issues that they're facing are the trouble is is that's only part of the uh, diagnosis piece that doesn't answer the what next question so a, a lot of what's happening at the moment and we never stood a better chance by the way i mean this has never been a top-down problem before um but it is now this is still at the diagnosis stage really we haven't that you're not start you're not seeing the policies develop at the fixing it piece yet but this is the first time in my lifetime in the built environment that this isn't a seasonal problem anymore i was saying this the other day every year all of us involved in conversation damper mold is infuriating because people wouldn't take your call in june july and august about conversation damper mold because it gone away largely right and all of a sudden you got back into the heating season and there was a mad panic because boilers weren't coming on and conversation started appearing again but this is the first time ever i've seen a sustained interest and focus and this is because it's top down and political and you've got the housing ombudsman in the uk and the the, the, the regulator for social housing and a lot of new laws coming in that pressure is maintained for the first time ever it seems and we're seeing action through the summertime into next winter the first time ever and that's very very encouraging but i think people do have to be aware of where we are this isn't a this isn't even a five-year fix mm. you know this, this is on a scale of retrofit retrofit and sustainability and you know all of that it's a it's a systemic change in how we manage buildings that is going to take some time to work its way through well, um, this is it. Is is there a risk, Simon, in this regard? If people are purely motivated by this specific focus of condensation, damp, and mold, that they try to find ways of solving that problem, um, which ignore, for instance, there's there's going to be some remedial stuff that people are doing. There's lots of spivs out there selling uh, solutions where it's just a a, a paint that the mold resistant paint or whatever they're kind of arguing it might be. And if ventilation has been a causal factor in the mold or lack of ventilation, um, and that's not addressed. Would you be concerned about about uh, risks of of other health problems not being addressed in those situations? Um, less so. I'm more concerned about the systemic nature of condensation, damp, and mold because it's so integral to much of what else we're doing within the built environment that if it's not dealt with systemically, we miss so many opportunities to deal with it and other things well at the same time that. We may never get another chance to do it as well as we have now. You know, there's a massive program for retrofitting in the UK and Ireland. We've got a massive push on dealing with condensation, damp and mould. Most of the things that we talk about in retrofit, good retrofit, deal with condensation, damp and mould. So for those two not to mesh properly will be an enormous missed opportunity, you know, improving ventilation improving insulation values in buildings you know having professionals enter that property and coordinate and develop a plan for a building is all the stuff manna from heaven 
they're dealing with conversation damp and mold. Not to leverage that would be an enormous missed opportunity. I mean, if you think of the things that cause conversation damp and mold, there are effectively four pillars. You've got building fabric. So everything from disrepair and cracks in plaster and leaks and gutters all the way through to the U values and air tightness of the building. You've got the systems as a second pillar, which is your the heating systems, the ventilation systems, the stuff that makes the building work. You've got the use of the property. So people's patterns of behavior in the property have huge ramifications on outcomes when it comes to condensation, damp and mold. And then the fourth pillar is context. Again, that context word, but that has huge impacts on outcomes. The best example of that has been the fuel property crisis of this winter. It doesn't matter if all the other three pillars are working pretty well. If someone can't afford to heat their home, then you're going to have condensation, damp and mould problems. So you can imagine in each of those pillars, they strike through with enormous depth within a housing association, all sorts of silos within that organisation. You've got kitchen replacement programmes, void programmes, business as usual maintenance programmes, surveying, you know, the general stock condition surveying of the building. You've got social programmes, poverty help programmes. You know, there's an enormous amount going on within an organisation that has touch points on each of those four pillars. But the, the biggest risk is the potential for missed opportunity. The, the challenge in most housing associations is access. So when you finally across a threshold and you're talking to a resident and you're in a property, but whatever reason it is that you've you're dealing with that property at that time it might be a the, the, that property is just due a kitchen. It's ten years since it last had a kitchen. The amount of times I've been into social housing and they've re- spent ten grand or five grand replacing the kitchen and doing some decoration work, nobody thought to deal with the ventilation while they were there. You know, we started this conversation on cooker hoods, right? You, you, and all of a sudden you go in there, there's a recirculating hood that's never going to be used above the cooker again. It's it's that strategic level approach where you go, why are these things not working? Why are we getting bad outcomes across all across this sector? What are what are the touch points within this sector that we can have an impact on that and bringing that all together in a coordinated way? And that's complicated enough just with conversation damp and mold on its own. But really, that should be done in conjunction with the retrofitting programs that you've got, the investment programs that you've got within social housing, the general maintenance and building works programs. There's an enormous amount of coordination required. So as an analog to what you're saying there, Simon, you can think about in the way we talk about uh, CO2 as a proxy for all sorts of other issues that are can be dealt with by dealing with CO2, the, the damp and mold issue could be used as a catalyst and a proxy for dealing with all sorts of other systemic issues with regard to retrofit and with regard to improving the the quality of people's homes. Like we still see, we were working on a a, a retrofit strategy brief with a significant housing provider last week, you know, thousands of units, and their damp and mould personnel are still segregated from the people dealing with energy efficiency and from the people dealing with housing you know, they're all operating in their silos and ostensibly they are talking together, but not not properly. It's only through their own volition that they're making the effort. I yeah, think. and that's the big part communication has in it, Dan, which I, I know is is your guy's sweet spot. But 
One of the biggest risks within these complex systems is the breakdown of communication within the organization itself, not not necessarily between the organization and the outside stakeholders. Because what happens is you get this often silos appear because you get this over time and erosion of trust. Not that somebody's doing anything nefarious, but you know, if you're going in to do surveying in properties and time and time again you see the same mistakes being happening from other departments that are creating poor outcomes you then don't believe in that approach that that particular silo is is approaching things from um and you get this breakdown in communication that doesn't help anybody so a, a lot of the success i think in the with these complex programs is going to be communication based it's creating systems and communication strategies within the organization that it's that, you know, your road being dug up to put a phone line in and six weeks later, somebody's in, right? Mm. Digging up again to do something else. It, you know, nothing infuriates people more than this sense that people aren't talking to each other. Yeah. And that's not just as a, a householder looking at my road being dug up again. It's that happens within the organizations where you went, I only bloody dug that road up last week and some bollocks has come in and done it, you know, undone all my good work and they never repair it as well as we repair it and so on and so forth. <laughs> and that that is a, analogous to a lot of what goes on in housing where you get, you know, intervention after intervention over many years, none of which being done in a joined up way and everybody feeling like, the other intervention is in some way deteriorating the work that they've done uh, and it's not good uh, and it's the the common complaint we see all the time when we go into housing is kitchens being replaced bathrooms being replaced a void program where they've they've, they've had an opportunity to be in an empty building and not dealt with the ventilation while they were there you know an enormous missed opportunity and now a year later somebody's in there and you're having to box stuff out and drill holes in stuff and it's a nightmare you know cool. that it's that kind of thing that that has enormous opportunity to make really good steps forward it's it's very difficult to do in big organizations because they're, yeah. they're so dispersed so going back to my question about what people can do if you're in a position to do so foster collaboration between other departments to make it happen because that's the easiest way for everyone to have a proper impact cool all right. Well, we, I think we better wrap up because we're we're past time by now. Man, it's been a pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for joining us, Simon. Yeah. Was that the yeah. podcast? Was it? I thought we were just having a chat. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking we better get started soon. <laughs> Next time you're on, um, we'll, what we'll do, Simon, is we'll get you to close the door, close the windows, stick a, an indoor air quality monitor, monitor in the corner, and we'll we'll be the judge of how the, the quality of your contribution, how how it uh, fades over time, basically, yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, quite quickly, I'd imagine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, watch along for Simon's waning. All right, then. So is there anything you'd like to plug? Obviously, your recently launched consultancy, Air Quality Matters. So where can people find you? Just Google air quality matters and you should find me if you're on linkedin you'll you'll probably spot me floating around on there as well i'm pretty active so look at I me mean, if you're if you're in housing or you're dealing with workplace issues and you've got any interest in getting better outcomes when it comes to ventilation and air quality seeing 
the same mistakes being made over and over. Just reach out and let's have a conversation. That's what I'm here for. And we can see what we can do for you. I think Jeff will attest that I'm a very no-nonsense person, very good at translating the complex and nuanced into good practical ways of making good steps forward. That's what I do. Um, and that's really what the consultancy is set up to do is just help people navigate this. It's not murky, but just complex and nuanced space of ventilation and air quality outcomes in the built environment. It's um, There's so much we can do in this space to make people's lives so much better. Uh, and often it's just about the right conversation at the right time. It, it often doesn't need much. So, yeah, reach out, have a, have a chat to me, and I'll be delighted to talk to people. Um, I think you're airqualitymatters.net. That's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. Airqualitymatters.net, yeah. There's a few air quality matters out there, and some of the websites were utterly garbage, so I wouldn't like you to be tarred with that particular brush. Oh, brilliant. All right, we'll say goodbye now. Uh, thanks so much yeah. for, for coming on. It was a pleasure. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Thanks, All right, cheers, and uh, thanks for listening. Uh, last things, um, join ACAN, join the ECB, join the IGBC. Subscribe Passivas Plus, advertise if you can. The revenue really helps the product. Most of the profit goes into making more of it. So every little helps. What else? Talk to us about the Zero Ambitions Partners Consultancy. Similarly to Simon, we're working on a bunch of decarbonisation briefs and strategy briefs and messaging briefs at the moment. If you need to talk about any of those sorts of things, holler at us. Anything else, Jeff? No, I was just amused by you um, talking about you working on your briefs. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. Uh, cool. And on that high note, we shall end <laughs> the podcast. Thank you. Cheers. Bye.